0: Um, Those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Sung Lee. I am a um, member of the Presbyterian, also a chaplain in the Virginia National Guard. A couple of things about me before I begin preaching, just to give you fair warning. I can get a little loud. Um, I I was back at the chaplain officer basic course, and one of our instructors, I was with a fellow PCA brother there, and we were both kind of loud, and one of our chaplain instructors were like, God doesn't like it. When, he yell, when you yell at his people. So I just want to give you a warning. I am not yelling at you. I can get a little animated and um, loud, as my children can attest. The second thing is that I'm a manuscript preacher. That means I write down basically almost everything I'm going to say because my I'm not smart enough to remember everything I'm going to say. So the good news for you is usually my sermons are Fairly brief, between 20 to 25 minutes, and I don't usually go down rabbit holes, because then I'll lose track of where I'm at. So you guys are going to get out of here before the storm, Lord willing. Uh, So with that being said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this gathering. We thank you for today where we can hear your word proclaimed freely uh, without any uh, threat of persecution. I pray, Lord, that we would take advantage of this, that you would open our hearts to what you have to say to us. I pray also for what I'm about to speak, that you would redeem my words I'm about to say and that let only truth remain in the hearts of the hearers. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to take up our uh, section in Hebrews. We're going to begin in chapter 9, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 10. So here, the most important thing you're going to hear today, which is going to be the very words of God, starting in Hebrews chapter 9, verses, starting in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared in the first section, excuse me, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread, and the bread of presence. It was called a holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered of all sides of gold, and in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot speak in detail right now. These preparations having been thus made, the priests go in regularly into the section performing the ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of this present age. According to this, these arrangements, gifts, and sacrifices are offered that cannot cannot perfect the consciousness of worshipers. But deal, only, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for, for the body imposed until, they are imposed until a time of reformation. Well, if you're like me and follow the uh, news regularly, the national news has recently been really concerned about the security of our nation's most protected secrets. And this topic has again come up, unfortunately, for discussion. And it seems that this conversation actually comes up every couple of years when somebody, somebody actually decides that it might be a good idea to go against his or her own nation, a nation that has placed their trust in this particular individual. And when this happens, the topic of discussion in both the media and within the government inevitably is centered around how to possibly prevent this from happening again. So people start talking about different things. They talk about tightening security, the security in facilities, limiting people's access to information, and conducting better background investigations. Now, not to be too cynical, but I would predict that none of these measures would do a great job in dealing with preventing future security leaks. The reason for my cynicism cynicism comes from the reality that these actions really don't get to the heart and the root of the problem. You see, the major causes of these leaks are not because we have a faulty system. The system that is actually in place right now is actually very secure. You see, anyone and everyone who wants access to classified materials in the US government must jump through very, um, numerous steps, a lot of hoops, so to say. For example, if you want to have a security clearance and have access to these classified materials, you have to first have to have a need to know. They don't just give it to anybody and everybody. You have to go through an extensive background investigation, and most actually go through a polygraph examination or a lie detector test. And then when you are actually granted access to these things, you actually are still limited because most of the information that you have is compartmented. Not everybody knows what all the secrets in the United States are, especially where the aliens might be. So only certain people are allowed to access particular secrets. I don't believe in aliens, by the way. And the list of these measures can go on and on and on. So you have to ask yourself, what is the real cause of these security leaks? Um, Where do they come from? Well, I would guess and I will tell you that they most likely don't come from the system, but rather the people who are entrusted with these secrets. You see, the real root of the problem are the people who are given clearances to handle the, this type of information. They are faulty and not the system. And no matter how secure the system might get, it is actually impossible to identify a person who might actually one day decide to betray their country. Now, believe it or not, all this actually is very similar to what the author of Hebrews is addressing in our passage this morning. Actually, it has a lot to do with what he's been trying to address throughout the whole book of Hebrews. And while it has absolutely nothing to do with national security secrets, it actually deals with something much, much more important. How to approach and have a real relationship with a holy God. You see, we've seen in the last couple of sermons that God gave his people Israel, the Old Testament people of Israel, a system on how to approach him. And through the years, his people faithfully used this system. As we saw in chapter eight, this system was centered around the tent of meeting as they wandered the wilderness to reach the promised land. And when they got to where they thought was their final destination, they again followed God's direction and built a permanent structure in which they believed God would permanently dwell and in which they could have access to a holy God. And this temple structure is what was described in today's scripture text. And through it, the writer of Hebrews is describing three things that all of God's people, no matter if you're in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, three things that all of God's people need to have. These three things are, one, a place to worship, two, an offering to give to God as in worship, and finally, a specific approach towards God as you worship Him. Now, with this in mind, with these three things in mind, let's take some time to explain and look at these three things, and in the end, see how it relates to us here in the 21st century. Now, Before I go further, I want to maybe pause and look at a brief footnote regarding the significance of these rituals described throughout the whole book of Hebrews. You see, even though many of the things described may seem strange and a bit cumbersome, we need to realize that all these things described in the Old Testament and in the book of Hebrews were given to God's Old Testament people and us this morning as a gift of grace. Even though these rituals were mere shadows of the reality that would be revealed to us in Christ Jesus, all these things were true nonetheless. You see, this fact is uh, summed up by Richard, Pastor Richard Phillips when he says the following To say that Christ serves the true tabernacle is not to say that the Israelite temple service was false. The contrast is between the true, that is, the final, the real, and the ultimate, and the copy and shadow that was on earth. You see, it's not true versus false, but true versus temporary and illustrative, end quote. And this temporary and illustrative form of approaching God were all given, again, as an act of grace. Moses reminds us of this in Deuteronomy chapter seven reminding us that even Israel wasn't chosen to behold any revelation of God because they were special, just like we weren't chosen to know God because we were special. He says in Deuteronomy 7, addressing the Old Testament people of God, for you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people... That the Lord has said His love and chose you, you're the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping His oath that He swore to you and His fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand to redeem you from the house of slavery and from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You see, God's favor rested on Israel in the Old Testament, and his favor rests on us today comes to us out of pure love and pure grace, nothing else. They are all mercies and they're all undeserving. So even though what was given to the Israelites were just mere shadows, it still contained the truth that God desired to have a relationship with his people. And And what would be required to fulfill that relationship with his people? Namely, again, we need a place to worship an offering, and a particular approach towards God. And for the Israelites, this, particular, uh, this place of worship was the tabernacle. If you look again in verses two to four, the writer describes um, some important aspects of this place. Notably, we see that it was composed of two sections, the holy place and the most holy place. And each section was distinctive and had its own purpose. In the first section, was where the priests would go every day to commune with God. And they would do this on behalf of the people of God. And within this first section, it says it contained a lampstand, 12 loaves of bread, and right before you entered the most holy place, there was an altar or a bowl of incense. You see, each of these things symbolized specific things. The lampstand represented the light of God's divine revelation for his chosen people. The bread symbolized God's grace in feeding Israel and his desire to have fellowship with his people. And finally, the incense represented the prayers of the people that were lifted up to God by and through the priests. But again, as we're reminded throughout the book of Hebrews and with all earthly institutions, this communion with God was extremely limited. Limited in only that the priest had the privilege of coming that close to God. Limited in that the presence of God had to be renewed every morning and every evening as a priest came to ensure that the candles remained lit and that the incense continued to burn. Limited in that only the high priest could spiritually commune with God as they ate and replaced those showbread or the bread of presence. But again, we should be and need to be remembered that these things are all still gifts of grace because they all point to a time when these limits would all be removed. When the true temple of God would be established in the hearts of his people and would be established by the one who would would come and came to tabernacle with his people. As John describes in his prologue, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The one who pitched his tent with his people and declared that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The one who is the one who promised to feed us because he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him will never thirst. And he is also the one who continually intercedes for us before God's throne of grace. You see, this place of worship was established to point to the one to provide us, to provide all of us free access to God, access that would not be limited to faulty priests representing our needs, but true and real access, unhindered access, to commune with God through Christ's sacrifice. And this brings us to the second point of today's sermon. To be allowed to be in the presence of a holy God demands an offering. You see, that's the main point of the most holy place in the temple. Rather than focusing our attention on what was in the second section of the tabernacle, the writer's emphasis is on what the high priest actually did in that section. He offered what he believed was an acceptable sacrifice to God. This is why the author says in the end of verse 5 after he describes what's in the holy place, why he says of these things we cannot speak in detail right now because something more important is at hand right here the sacrifice that you need to approach a holy God. You see, the author wants to point our attention to what is at the heart of the matter. Acceptable worship before a holy God always, absolutely always requires a sacrifice. Now, slow down a little bit. Talking about sacrifices to God in the 21st century I don't know about you, but that may seem a little archaic. I mean, aren't we a little bit more sophisticated to believe that God demands such sacrifice? Haven't we, quote, progressed in our knowledge to believe such things? But if you slow down and you think about your life, you'll see that sacrifice actually makes a whole lot of sense, even in the 21st century. You see, even today, whenever you want access to something or someone exclusive, what does it require? It requires sacrifice. This sacrifice could mean your time, your effort, your money. But the problem is many don't associate these things with sacrifice because the end result is actually worth the cost. So what makes coming before a holy God any different? How much greater a sacrifice is required of sinful, imperfect humans if they want to be in the presence of a holy God? I mean, if you slow down and think about it, coming before a holy God and providing sacrifice is way a lot more important than maybe getting Taylor Swift tickets, wouldn't you guess? I mean, we're talking about having a relationship with the creator and sustainer of the universe. And think about the reward of such a relationship. It's a loving relationship with the God who created you. It's a relationship with the one who promised and can make you whole. It's a relationship with the one who actually can provide what we all desire. You see, he is offering you shalom, true peace, and true satisfaction. Isn't that what everyone in this room is looking for and searching for in their life? But if you look at verses 3 and 6, we see that this offer of shalom is hindered by our unnatural separation from God. And I say unnatural because we were always created to be in communion with God. You see, this this is symbolized by the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. This curtain actually made it vividly clear to anyone entering the temple that we could not enter God's presence without bringing a sacrifice. A sacrifice was needed because of our corrupt consciences. A corrupt conscience that tries to tell us that we can find true fulfillment and joy apart from God. You see, theologian F.F. Bruce describes it this way when he says, and I quote, The really effective barrier to man or woman's free access to God is inward and not a material one. It exists in the conscience. It is only when the conscience is purified that one is set free to approach God without reservation and offer him acceptable service and worship. But again, the strange thing about our current state is that we are separated from the very one who we were created to be in communion with. And I'll quote Andrew Murray as he points out, and I quote, the veil was the symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful man. They cannot dwell together. The tabernacle thus expressed union of two apparently conflicting truths. God called man to come and worship and serve him, yet he cannot come too near. The veil kept him at a distance. Love calls a sinner near. Righteousness keeps him back. The Holy One bids Israel to come to, to build him a house in which he will dwell, but forbids them from entering his presence there because of their sin. End quote. And thus, we're left with this internal conflict. We're left with a longing for something more. And this leads us to the final point. In order to have access to the one who can give us this shalom that everyone is looking for, we need a proper approach towards God. All of us know that we can't just come willy-nilly towards a holy God. Even those who may not believe in God know this deep down in their heart. This is why the Old Testament people of God needed priests. And even with all these priests, the rite of Hebrews makes it clear that only the high priest, only that special priest was able to come before the presence of God in the most holy place. And as we see in verse 7, even this high special priest had to make sure that his sins were taken care of before he could come and do his job representing the rest of Israel. But even this approach of God, towards God, was extremely limited Why? Because it was never finished. They had to repeat this over and over again, every year, year after year after year, high priest after high priest. So this is why the writer of Hebrews says in verse 10, what truly was needed was reformation. A new way needed to be established, not because, again, the system was broken, but rather because the people carrying out the system were and are broken beyond repair. This is something that God knew when he established this sacrificial system that was established in the temple. God knew that faulty priests and sacrifices could never cleanse the consciences of women and men broken by the fall. But he established this system to point to that perfect high priest who would one day come and this high priest would, would not only carry out his duties perfectly, but he would be that perfect sacrifice that could and would once and for all satisfy all the demands that are placed on us this morning. And we have seen this throughout the book of Hebrews, and it will be explained a little bit more in more detail next week. This high priest would come in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, God incarnate. Now, if you have trusted in Christ, he has promised you to give you his spirit. And this means, and this changes everything. This is the reformation that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. This means that you have all three things needed to properly worship God. You no longer have to go to that specific place to worship God In the Old Testament, that place we're reminded was the temple. But even if you talk to Orthodox Jews today, after 70 AD, they have no place to go worship truly. You see, the Old Testament religion was, come and see God's goodness. But after Christ, because he has come, it's now go and tell of Christ's goodness. You see, as Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You no longer have to offer a particular sacrifice. Why? Because Christ offered himself once and for all as the perfect sacrifice. And this is why he cries out, It is finished. And it never be repeated ever again. And you no longer have to cautiously approach God. Because why? As a writer of Hebrew reminds us earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, we are commanded. We are commanded to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We no longer have to come cautiously approaching God out of fear that will be struck down. No, God is commanding you this morning to draw near to him. Are you lacking something in your life? Are you ashamed of your sin? Have you messed up? Well, the command is right here. Because of Christ, your approach to God is free, unhindered access to approach his throne of grace, to find mercy, to find grace in your time of need. And it is because of Jesus that we are confident in God's love for us. All this just reminds us that it is God who loves us, that he would send his only son for us. You see, as the Puritan John Owen reminds us, the Holy Spirit so persuades us that God loves us, that our souls are filled with joy and comfort. This is his work, and he does it effectively to persuade a poor sinful soul that God in Christ Jesus and Jesus Christ loves him, delights in him, is well pleased with him, and only has thoughts of kindness towards him is an inexpressible mercy. Think about that. Think about what John Owens and the rest of Scripture is telling us. That God loves us, that He is well pleased with you this morning, and that He has thoughts of kindness towards you. It's amazing. And now, before I close today's sermon, I just want you guys to indulge me with a little bit more, a few more minutes. Because I want to address those in this room that may not be familiar with some of the things mentioned in today's sermon, or in the book of Hebrews, or in the rest of scriptures. I mean, this has to be addressed because we live in this weird time where I just did a conference for chaplains in the state, and and one of my topics I addressed was Gen Z, and if you look at statistics these days, Generation Z is probably the first generation where spiritual, eating spirituality has lost its thrust. You know, they call this generation the generation of none because when you ask them what religion they affiliate with, they say none because they believe that they have made progress beyond religion. Now... If you're part of this category, trust me. Some of the things in the Bible and what I mentioned this morning as I was preparing the sermon, I'm not, I'll be very transparent, seems strange to me too. And I'll be very transparent. You read throughout the Old Testament and there, a lot of things seem very strange and confusing. I'm not going to deny that. However, what doesn't seem strange is that when you get past all the ancient customs and all the rituals of this book and the rest of the Bible, the central message of all of Scripture addresses everyone's deepest longings. Again, the central theme of all of Scripture addresses everyone's deepest longings. Now, you may be a young adult or a teen that are going, no, you don't know my longings. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I want. Well, let me take a guess. You see, while it may seem strange in the 21st century to say that one thing, say that the one thing that will bring you true and lasting joy is a relationship of God with God through worship. This strangeness doesn't make it any less true. You see, worship is at the heart of all of our deepest longings. Why? Because worship was what we were created to do. Worship was what we, everyone, all of mankind, was created to do. And you might be saying, now you're wrong. Well, I will say, worship is something that we all do and continue to do. You see, we all do and will worship something. So the question isn't, will worship will you worship today?" The question is: is the object of worship filling your deepest desires and longings? Or, is that object of worship is that thing that you worship? It could be career? It could be your spouse, or it could be a desire to have a spouse, or it could be your children. Are these things fulfilling you? Are these things giving you shalom? Or are these things a mere shadow pointing you to the one that will fulfill your deepest desires? And I'll sum this up by, by quoting C.S. Lewis in his book, "The Weight of Glory." Essen a- mentioned one of these quote, um, one line from this two weeks ago, and I thought this would be a great way to end this sermon. And C.S. Lewis is addressing this vital thing of what will bring you true Shalom, and what should you worship to find this true Shalom? Again, I quote C.S. Lewis. And he says, in speaking of our desires for our own far off country, country in which we find ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost comm- committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take revenge at it by calling it names like nostalgia, romanticism, or adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness That when, in the very intimate conversations, the mention of it it becomes imminent. And when it becomes imminent, we grow awkward, in effect, to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that we have never actually appeared, that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of its name. You see, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are all good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, They turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower that we have not found, the echo of a tune that we have not heard, the news from a country that we have yet to visit. So have you found what you truly long and truly desire? Well, I will declare if you are found in Christ Jesus, even, no matter what you may go, be going through, he is your help and your comfort in your time of need. And he is with you and he will sustain you no matter what struggles you may be going through. If you do not know Christ this morning and you are searching for that thing that you believe will satisfy you, I would ask and maybe ask you to consider and ponder the things that were spoken of here today. That it is Christ that you are looking for. He is the one that you are searching for. And he is calling you today to come home to him. But whether you have trusted in Christ or are still searching, please know that he loves you and he is there for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for reminding, you of, reminding us of the, love that we, of the love that you have for us, reminding us that we can approach you freely because we are now, if we have trusted in your son Jesus, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that Christ, that you have put, uh, provided that perfect sacrifice in your own body, and now we don't have to cautiously approach you because you command us to come to you. So we pray, Lord, that throughout this week that we would come to you and that we would find rest in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.